0: And this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Then Jesus answered her, A woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and especially passages like this that have hard edges to them. And like all reality that opposes us, and thinks differently than the way that we naturally think. And yet, uh, Lord, your word is filled with hope and truth because it leads us to you. It reveals to us who you are. We pray for your spirit now to guide us as we commit our minds to study your word. And that you would apply these words into each one of our individual lives as we uh, present ourselves to you now to be taught, to be instructed. And we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a story from a radio program called This American Life, which some of you probably listened to. is a story about a blind man named Daniel Kish. And the unusual thing about uh, Daniel Kish is that he, even though he's blind, he actually knows how to ride a bike, he rides his bike around the neighborhood. Um, he actually goes on miles-long hikes by himself in the woods near cliffs that you know he's walking right by that he could fall off of quite easily, and he's blind. He'll go to foreign cities that he's never been to and just walk around and navigate these foreign cities by himself. And the way that he does it is he makes a clicking noise with his mouth. And kind of like how a bat... Can see by sending out, you know, sonar, and it bounces off the walls, and they can kind of see where they're going. That's what he does with his mouse. Is he makes this clicking noise, and based on how the clicks bounce off the objects around him, he can tell what's happening. And he actually claims that even though he's blind, he can actually see. And uh, and actually, in in this program, they go to these, you know, neuroscientists who put brain scans on him, and uh, they they studied that for most blind people, they're um, visual cortex is inactive. But for Daniel Kish, when they you know, put the scan on him, there's all kinds of blood, you know, there's all kinds of firing happening in his brain in that part, that there are actual images being formed in his brain. And and the doctors say that his vision is about equivalent to our peripheral vision, just based on clicking. And it's this amazing thing. And, and so he's like, you know, blind people can do quite a lot. And, and, you, and you hear this story and you're like, you can click and you can see things. You can actually see, but you're blind. how do you ever learn to do that? Well, as he tells this story, um, what he says is that the way that his mom raised him was that she absolutely refused to rescue him from pain and danger. She refused to rescue him. And actually, that's what happens with blind people most of their life as they're being rescued. From, from pain and danger. And so, actually, when he was a little boy, she said, he said, you mom, I want a bike. He was blind. She said, why not? Have a bike. And so he learned to ride a bike. And actually, you know, it didn't always go that well. He, t- he says at one point, he was going down a hill and uh, ran head-on into a metal pole and just wrecked his bike and wrecked his face and all his teeth were shattered out. And, you know, next Christmas, guess what was under the tree? A new bike for him. And until his... And, you know, and many parents that knew this mom said, Poor blind boy, you know, you're letting him ride his bike and run into poles. Like, how can you do this? How neglectful. And the reality is that this was not because um, she did not love him or that she was indifferent to his pain, the pain that he was experiencing. She raised him this way is because she intended to draw something out of him. She wanted to draw something out of him, and so she didn't rescue him. And what the Bible teaches us is that God frequently does not rescue us from situations and experiences that are dangerous, painful, disappointing, and difficult. And the reason is because he wants to draw out of us a deeper, more abiding, persevering faith in him. And, uh, and even though God brings trials into our lives, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us or that he is indifferent to us, but it often feels that way. And this passage that we're looking at is actually illustrates this quite powerfully, because you know, there's a story about this Canaanite woman who's got a daughter who's being oppressed by a demon, and she's helpless, and she comes to Jesus pleading with him to help her, and we see a side of Jesus that we actually don't see very often in the passage. He's kind of cold towards her. And... um he seems to have a hardness and an indifference to her. And yet we find out at the end of the passage, he says of this woman, this is the only place in all the Gospels that Jesus ever says of anyone that they had great faith. He praises her like no one else in, the, in all the Gospels. An incredibly fascinating passage about God's demeanor towards us when we are going through trials. And so this morning we're going to talk about the experience of trials in the Christian life and we're going to learn three things in particular from this passage. First, that trials force us to go to Jesus. The thing that presses us to go to Jesus are trials. But second, surprisingly, trials feel like God is absent. But lastly, trials are appointed for those God loves. Even though he feels absent, trials are appointed, it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Okay? And so these are the three profound truths we're going to look at in this passage. So first, trials force us to go to Jesus. And you know, this passage begins, verse 21, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre, in Sidon, which is to say, so Jesus has been most of his time in Galilee, is where he grew up, which is a predominantly Jewish region. And you know, a few weeks ago we saw that uh, John the Baptist has just been beheaded, and so you know, there's kind of um, alert level amber, maybe you know, that this is kind of a dangerous place for Jesus to be, and it's not time for him to be crucified. So he's withdrawing into a non-Jewish region, which is in uh, Phoenicia, which is just northwest of of uh, of Galilee into a non, you know, that's where uh, Tyre and Sidon are. Those are the main cities there. And even though he's go- Jesus is going into this region that's not predominantly Jewish, and Jesus was a Jew, he came as the king of the Jews, the people there had heard about him, and so they're coming out of the cities to come see him. And that's why it says, verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." Now, we learn a couple things about this woman in this statement, um, for, in this verse. First of all, uh, that she's a Canaanite woman. And, you know, most commentators say that's actually kind of an odd word for Matthew to use there, to say that she's a Canaanite woman. It's kind of outdated. It was an old-fashioned way to call someone, you know, from Phoenicia. But, you know, what that really means in biblical terms, is more of a biblical word. And if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Canaan was the land that Israel went into to take uh, as the promised land. And the people who were living there, called the Canaanites, were a profoundly wicked people. Um, they had all kinds of uh, sexual deviance and sexual abuse that was tolerated in their culture. They even they sacrificed their children to their gods. They burned their children to their gods. I mean, it was a profoundly wicked people. And so when this woman is described as a Canaanite woman, it's saying that at least culturally, she's someone who's very far from God. She's someone who's very far from God. But we also learn about her that her daughter is oppressed by a demon. Um, her daughter is under the control of an evil spirit. And you know, you, know, you just imagine that. Those, for those of you are parents, that's one of the great trials that you can experience in your life is when your child is suffering and you feel out of control. There's nothing you can do about it. And so here's a woman who's far from God, and yet she she has a profound trial she's going through. She's suffering. She is desperate. She is out of control. And it's here that she comes to Jesus. It's in this setting that she runs to Jesus for mercy. Um, Trials force us to go to Jesus, and that's why trials are actually an essential part of the good life. Trials are an essential part of the good life. And you know, I'll tell you, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to as a pastor who have, you know, will describe a major trial that they've gone through in their life. And they will, many people say this, I, I would have never come to God, I would have never met Christ if I hadn't had this painful experience in my life. And even though I absolutely never would have asked for it, if I was writing the story of my life, I, there's no way I would have written this into my life. And yet... It was what I needed, I see now that God was in it. So this first thing we learn is that um, trials force us to go to Jesus. But what's interesting about this passage is you imagine this woman, you know, she's desperate, she's far away from God, she's come to Jesus, she's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And we'd say, okay, the trial got you to Jesus, but you'd imagine that when you get to Jesus, that, you know, he'd start bringing the blessings on, right? He'd start pouring the blessings on when you get to Jesus. And um, that's not what this woman finds when she comes to Jesus. She actually doesn't find warmth, and she doesn't find open arms. And this is the second thing that we learn about trials in this passage. A profound truth, that trials feel like God is absent. That is what they feel like. Now, this, this woman, she comes to Jesus, she cries out to Jesus, and actually... She has some theology, even though she's not a Jew. You know, she's coming from a, you know, she's this Canaanite woman. She actually knows Jesus is the son of David. So she knows something about the Old Testament, that there's this promised son of David who's going to be the king. She's actually quite astute. She comes and she asks for mercy. And I think that these next words that Matthew records are words that some of us can relate to. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. She cries out to Jesus for mercy and he doesn't answer her a word. The response to her crying out is silence. I know that some of you have had that experience. You've been in desperate places in your life. You've cried out to Jesus. And that's been the response of silence. There wasn't a yes, there wasn't a no. There was simply, are you even hearing me? Are you alert? Are you awake? there's no answer it's just pure silence but then it gets worse right the disciples then say to Jesus can you just do what she wants to get rid of her and then Jesus kind of coldly says in verse uh, 24 I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel I have no obligation to this woman I'm coming for Israel that's why I came That's, that's why God sent me and so then this woman becomes even more bold, though, right? Because apparently there's a whole crowd of people that have come around Jesus, and she's kind of on the outskirts yelling to him, Please have mercy, my daughter is being oppressed by a demon. And then it says in verse 25, but she came, so she comes even closer to Jesus, very, you know, vulnerable, and knelt before him. She actually is taking a posture of bowing down in worship. And, you know, how can you not be drawn to these words, Lord, help me. And the only thing that we can say about the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth is that they are simply shocking. They're jarring words. There's Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The poor woman is agonizing about her daughter, and Jesus says not only when he won't help her, he calls her a dog. Which, um, by all appearance, what Jesus is saying is, is, at least on the surface, heartless, if not racist statement to be calling this foreigner woman a dog. And, you know, it's interesting, all kinds of commentators, when you read on this, they try to, whatever in any way they can, to kind of soften this. You know, one commentator, is one of my favorites, Dale Bruner, he says, you know, the word for dog there, it's little dog. You know, and it's kind of like a house pet. And, you know, we love our dogs. And, you know... That only makes sense to us because in our culture we love our dogs more than our children. And so, you know, we think, oh, maybe dog is actually a nice thing to say. That would not have been true in in the ancient world. You know, and another commentator says, you know, Jesus, he kind of had a twinkle in his eye. He was kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's like calling her a dog. She knew it was only a joke. There's no way you can read it that way. That is simply not, it's taking the teeth out of this passage that Jesus often feels absent and distant to those who love him most trials are not just events that force us to Jesus, but they are also experiences where he feels the most distant. And, um, you know, if you turn to page 3 in your bulletin, I I put a passage from C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis, some of you will know, was a bachelor most of his life. And late in life, he fell in love with a woman named Joy Davidman, and who, uh, in 1957, was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer in her hip. And while she was in the hospital, they were preparing for her to die. um, C.S. Lewis marries her in in her hospital room. And then they pray for a miracle. And Lewis says, as far as I can tell, this was a miracle. She, She recovered. And they spent the next three years just in love and enjoying one another in marriage. And then after three years, the cancer came back violently and took her life. And, you know, Lewis had... 20 years earlier, had written a book on why, you know, why does God bring suffering in the world? Why does God allow suffering in the world? It was a very philosophical kind of book called The Problem of Pain. And then after Joy's death, he wrote a journal where he talked about the experience of praying for her to recover again, and she didn't. And this is what he says in the beginning of the journal. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face? And a sound of bolting and double bolting inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will be. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity? And so very absent, a help in a time of trouble. What Lewis is powerfully um, describing here is there is an experience of God bolting the door when we are praying to him in some of our most desperate situations. And the Gospel of Matthew is confirming that there is a side to Jesus that is like this trials feel like God is absent. And, um, you know, I, I know that for many of us, when we're going through a trial, it, sometimes this is the thing that makes the trial the most difficult, is the fact that God feels absent. If he was there, I could, if, I, if I felt his presence, if I felt assured that this was his purposes, then, I, could, then I, I feel like I could endure it more. But it makes it more painful for him to not be there. And so the question is, how can we say this about Jesus. How can we say this? Isn't this the opposite? everything we talk about Jesus, is' he the opposite? Well, the first answer to this, that is yes. I mean, how many passages of Scripture have we come to like this? As far as I know, in the Gospels, this is the only episode where Jesus is like this. All the other episodes, he sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. And, uh, you know, people come to him and he heals them and, and all kinds of people and he's patient, he's enduring, he's forgiving sins and he's you know welcoming the tax collector. His arms are open and welcoming. That's the main thing that we see about Jesus. But, there is a side to him that we need to know about him. And, uh, you know, Samuel Rutherford was, was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in the 17th century who actually endured quite a lot of hardship in his life. And he, uh, he wrote a series of sermons, 27 sermons, just on this passage, because he was so fascinated with it. And it was formed into a book called The Trial and Triumph of Faith. And this is, this is Rutherford's explanation for what is happening here in this story. He says this, It is said, Jesus answered her, not a word. But it is not said... He heard not one word. These two differ much. His not answering is an answer and speaks thus. Pray on, go on, and cry. For the Lord holds, hear this analogy again, his door fast bolted, not to keep out, but that you may knock and knock. And what Rutherford says is even though Jesus feels silent, feels absent. He is not absent. He is listening to every word. He cherishes every word. And what he is training our hearts in is to be resilient, to be steadfast, and to persevere. And uh, this is, of course, what James says in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And so this is a a part of our life. And to be aware that this is something that that, um, Jesus gives to us. But one of the things that we learn from Rutherford here is that even though Jesus seems distant and hard to this woman, it is not a sign of his indifference, but amazingly, this is a sign of Jesus' respect for this woman. He has an incredible respect for her. And this is the third thing we learn about trials in this passage, is that trials are appointed for those God loves Trials are appointed for those God loves. And um, this, uh, this trial, the you know, harsh, distant handling of this woman, drew something out of her. Look at verse 27, this woman's response. Amazing. She said, so Jesus says, you know, I don't give the children's bread to dogs. And this is what she comes up with. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Amazing response. This woman, she, she's, first of all, she's very persistent, right? And she's like, nope, Jesus, I got an answer for that. You're going to say, no, I got something? She's very clever, right? She's like, okay, we'll, we'll go with the dog analogy. I'll work with that. You can call me a dog. You're the Lord of the universe. You can call me whatever you want. And, um, but also, she's humble, and she's incredibly hopeful. And she persists, and she keeps talking. And, um, and let me just say, by the way, I think this is a great example to us about prayer, You know, oftentimes we think of prayer as kind of a vague mood that we are in, just in God's presence. But what this woman tells us is that God wants us to think of arguments of why he should... Answer our prayers. And we should argue, well, this is the things that your Bible says. This is what your character is. This is why this would honor you and bring glory to your name. This is why this would be healthy for this person. And he wants you to come up with all those arguments and to set them before them and to argue with him to put his character... He wants to interact with us that way. And then you see here, look at how Jesus responds. Amazing. Was Jesus... Is Jesus cold towards this woman? Is is he indifferent to her? Not even close. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, "A woman... Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. As I mentioned, this is the only place in all the Gospels that Jesus says to someone, your faith is great. He praises someone. And you know, actually just a couple, you know, a few weeks ago we saw in the story when Jesus was walking on the water, what did he say about the disciples' faith? They had little faith. He regularly says that they have little faith. Here's this Canaanite woman, this far-off woman, who's persistent in her prayers and goes to him and he praises her. Jesus is not cold towards her. He loves this woman. He's, he, he knew what was going to come out of her. He knew what he was drawing out of her. This is one of his most expressive statements where he celebrates a person. Uh, Jesus gives both coldness and trials to the ones that he loves, the ones that he respects. And, of course, um, this, is, this picture is, is an important picture of the Christian life. You know, Acts 14 says that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And faith looks like standing fast, persevering, right? Or Colossians says, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, even when it appears that God is nowhere. And when we do that, We persevere when God appears to be nowhere. There's going to be a day where Jesus will celebrate us the way he's celebrating this woman. He's going to celebrate us. And the people that God is going to say great was their faith are going to be the people that endured the most bitter trials. That at times God felt the most absent were actually the ones that he's closest to. The most endeared towards. And you know... In the midst of that, of course, you know, we're saying, gosh, God is absent. I can't see him. What is he doing? But all of that, we are going towards a day where God is going to make all things right. That's how this passage ends, right? It says that, and her daughter was healed instantly. And, and, you know, if you don't know this about the Gospels, all of Jesus' miracles where he heals people, what all of these are supposed to be are little pictures, little foretastes of what God is going to do when Christ returns. And he heals his whole creation. He heals us. And he wipes away every tear. That day is coming. And so our perseverance, even though he feels absent, I know that that day is coming. And so we endure trials and hardships. We stand fast, certain that Jesus is bringing a day where he will make every wrong right. And but for now, we will have trials. And so the question for us is, you know, how do we trust a God? How do we keep walking and trusting a God who acts like that, who who will give us an appearance of being distant and cold? will bolt, bolt a door shut in our face. Gives us, makes us feel like a dog. The reason we can trust him is because this same God is the God who came into the pain and disappointment and trials of this dark world, and he himself knew them all. And he, in his darkest hour, what happened? When he's, his friends are abandoning him, he's being betrayed by his friends, Whole crowds are turning on him, want, want to crucify him. And what does he do? He goes and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And what did he get? A bolted door. Silence. The Jesus, who for a little while will give us experiences of silence, has himself had, experienced the great silence, the great trial where God's wrath against all sin was poured out on Him on the cross for us. And so as we look at the cross, as we look at Jesus coming where He will heal all things, some of you are going to have experiences where God feels absent. And the encouragement to you is, is to wait, to pray on, to be persistent, to argue with God and, and remain steadfast with the hope of the gospel that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the uh, truth of this passage. Lord, I know that there are some sitting here this morning who are in trials where they feel that the door has been bolted shut. Lord, I pray two things for them. First, I pray that you would give them endurance. That they would persevere. That they would feel encouraged um, by your word. They would feel encouraged by your people. But Jesus, we also see in this passage that you are not resistant to this woman for long. That you did let up. You did embrace her. And I pray for those who are here that you would give them a sense of your embrace even now. That you are indeed not uh, indifferent to us, but that you love us. You are endeared toward us. You hurt with us. Give us that faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.